Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if the Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I'd like to invite uh, boys and girls uh, to head out to story keepers or to nursery. Kids are heading out. Let me uh, pray God's help as we think about the passage today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the season of Advent and uh, for this opportunity for us to spend some time in this great chapter of this great book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8. We pray that uh, for all of us, no matter what kind of week we've had, what kind of challenges we face, what kind of delight uh, perhaps we've had in our lives recently, uh, what kind of questions we might have or doubts that this would be a time where you uh, commit to reveal yourself to us by your word as we open it up, as we hear you speak to us, and as your spirit helps us understand and apply to our lives. So help us now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tara and I went to our first indoor concert for a very long time this week when we went to see the husband-wife duo Over the Rhine uh, this Wednesday, this past Wednesday at World Cafe Live in Philadelphia, Linford Detweiler and Karen Burquist have been making music and performing for over 30 years now. Uh, we've seen them many times and we love their music very much, so we went to see them this week. And Wednesday's show was, uh, as advertised, the first of their Christmas tour, and indeed uh, most of the songs they played were from their two Christmas albums. But what was interesting to me was how they prefaced quite a few of their songs as songs that reflect, quote, reality Christmas. That is, the reality that Christmas for many of us is not all tinsel and lights, not all stockings and presents. 
that the reality of Christmas can be hard because regular life doesn't stop, suffering doesn't cease, strained relationships often continue to be strained. However, in the church calendar, those realities are actually what we're called to think about in this season that precedes Christmas, namely Advent. Advent, as we saw last week, marks the beginning of the Christian year and historically has not been intended to just be the run-up to Christmas, but rather the season that looked forward not so much to the birth of the baby Jesus in Bethlehem, but to the second coming of Jesus still in the future. Advent, therefore, locates the church in between these two markers of Jesus' first coming and his still-to-come second coming. And what we referred to last week using Fleming Rutledge's term, the time between, as we await Jesus' return in glory to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And as such, in this time between, in this period when we, we look forward to everything one day being made right, Advent actually begins in the present darkness of a world where everything definitely is not right. Advent begins in reality Christmas. Advent begins in a world of fears and fractures, of cancer and COVID, of hurts and heartache. Advent begins in the dark. And yet at the same time as we started to see last week, Advent is not all doom and gloom, far from it, because Advent is also this season brimming with the joyful expectation of the one who promised that he will return one day and make all things new, make all things right, to restore things to the way they're supposed to be. And that's the tension that we carry as Christians in this world. Last week, we began this Advent sermon series in Romans 8 by starting in the middle of the chapter in this Advent darkness and thinking about, about the realities of the sufferings of this world. So last week, we saw these three groaning witnesses in the midst of this Advent darkness, the, the witness, the groaning witness of the whole created order, the groaning witness of ourselves as Christians in this world, and the groaning witness even of the Holy Spirit. All whose groans were characterized by, by these two things held in tension, frustration and hope. Frustration at this present, future, this present futility and bondage of this world but at the same time, this definite hope that Jesus is returning one day to heal this world. And so we ended last week with two things to remember and hold on to. First of all, consider, Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then know, Romans 8, 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But here's the question that Paul is going to address in today's passage as we jump back to the beginning of Romans 8. What grounds did Paul have to make those statements? What assurances give him the confidence to consider what he considered and to know what he knew? And really the entire rest of Romans 8 answers those questions. We're going to look at this opening section today where we're, we're going to see this. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Our hope of all things new in the future. Our hope of all things new in the future is grounded in the newness of life through Jesus in the present. 
We're going to look at three things we now have, we already have, through Jesus, as presented here by Paul, a new freedom, secondly, a new mindset, thirdly, a new indwelling presence, all so that we might understand better that our hope of all things new in the future is grounded in the newness of life through Jesus in the present. So let's think first about this new freedom, verses 1 to 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, first things first, some of you know what I'm about to say. Anytime you read a therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for, and uh, we have good reason to ask that question here. Last week, I mentioned that J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, wrote that Paul's letter to the Romans is the high peak of Scripture, and that chapter 8, Romans 8, is the high peak, the Everest of the book of Romans. What I conveniently left out last week is that Packer also wrote that you can't really fully understand or grasp the glorious riches of Romans 8 without first reading and studying Romans 1 to 7. And now, of course, he's right. And so we may be missing something by parachuting right into Romans 8 in this series, but at least we can pick up a little bit of what's preceded it by considering the significance of the therefore the start of Romans 8, verse 1. Paul's therefore here, in some sense, reaches all the way back to chapter 3, where he began to tease out how God has rescued us from slavery to sin under the law, rescued us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his son. Now, we don't have time to trace the whole argument from chapter 3 through the next five chapters, but one helpful verse for us to refer back to here comes at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul declares the good news that anyone, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins is declared right with God and has peace with God. And what Paul then does here in chapter 8, verse 1, is he states, in a sense, negatively what he's already stated positively in chapter 5, verse 1, where he now says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the same statement, but just stated differently. These are two of the most glorious words in the entire Bible. No condemnation. These two words tell us of the position of every Christian before God. To be not condemned, of course, is a legal term. It means to be free from any liability, any penalty. No no one has any charges against you. And that's good news in any life setting, but it's the best news possible when it concerns your relationship with the God of this universe. A person who is in Christ has no condemnation from God. Christ has set you free. You have a new freedom. Now, some of us may say, really? I do? Christians are free? It doesn't feel very free to me to me at times. Christians, we know, all of us, we still sin like other people. We still suffer disease and death like everybody else. Christian in a COVID ward looks just like a non-Christian in that COVID ward. So what exactly has Christ set me free from? Paul says, well, if you trust in Jesus, he set you free from the condemnation that you deserve like every other person on this planet because you have failed miserably to live according to the standards that he has set for you. 
Robert De Niro, the actor, once said, my joy as an actor is to live different lives without risking the real life consequences. That's great for an actor, but the trouble for all of us, of course, is that that's not possible in the real world, is it? We all live with the consequences of our past, in many ways, at living with those consequences right up to the present. But Paul is saying there are much bigger consequences we need to think about, namely the verdict of the true and living God to how we've lived our lives. And left to our own resources, that verdict is only going to be one thing, condemnation. But for those who trust in Jesus Christ, that verdict is reversed, no condemnation. So in verses 2 to 3 then, Paul explains how it's possible for the Christian to receive no condemnation. Look at what he says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why is there now no condemnation for the Christian In a nutshell, Paul says, because Jesus has already been condemned in your place. Jesus bore the penalty on the cross you should have paid so that you now don't have to. So the devil may accuse you, the world may accuse you, you may accuse you, but God says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, now if you're in Christ, no condemnation. You've been set free. Von Roberts is the rector of St. Ebb's Church in Oxford, England. Tara has edited a couple of his books over the years. But he tells the story of a minister friend of his who was doing a sermon on forgiveness and decided he would do an experiment to see what other religions or traditions believed about forgiveness. It's a little bit cheeky because he invented an imaginary friend who would be the subject of his experiment. And so he first calls up a, a theologically liberal Quaker meeting house and he says to the person who answered the phone, I've got this friend. She's lived a a really, really immoral life. She's done many criminal things, but since she feels guilty about it, could she be right with God? And the person from the meeting house said, well, of course she can. God is loving. The minister said, but she's, she's done terrible things. Doesn't God need to judge her? He said, oh, no, God, God isn't a God of judgment, only love. And the minister rang an imam at the local mosque, told the story, asked if his friend could ever be forgiven. The imam said, well, God will weigh up her good deeds and her bad deeds. And if her good deeds outweigh her bad deeds, then Allah will have mercy and she'll be okay. And the minister said, but she, listen, she's lived a really, really bad life. Her good deeds don't outweigh her bad deeds. The imam said "Then Allah will do what is just. Not the most encouraging message. And then the minister rang up Von Roberts' predecessor at St. Ebb's Church. Rector was actually on his way out in a bit of a rush, but he heard the situation and he said, write this down and tell her this, A, B, C. A, admit she's sinful and does not deserve anything from God except his condemnation. B, believe that Jesus died in her place to take the penalties he deserved so she could be forgiven. And see, come to him, pray a simple prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and change me. It's as simple as A, B, C. And maybe someone here needs to hear the simplicity 
of this good news that puts us in a position of no condemnation. And its simplicity really lies in the fact that, strictly speaking, it's because you don't actually have to do anything because Jesus has, has done everything for you already. You just have to receive the gift. You just have to respond by receiving what he has done for you. But you see, once we do that, this word is ours. These words are ours. No condemnation. And it's not just that you're not condemned right now, but you may be condemned again later. There's no condemnation at all. It doesn't exist anymore for us. It's not that we've moved out from under condemnation for a while, but we could slip back under it again in the future if we mess up. If we're Christians, our sins, past sins, present sins, even our future sins have been dealt with once and forever, so condemnation no longer exists. It's gone. So then when you suffer and you're tempted to think God is condemning me, and Paul told us last week, everybody, Christians included, are guaranteed to suffer in this world. He's saying, if you're in Christ, then the suffering cannot be a sign of condemnation because there is no condemnation anymore. There can never more be condemnation for us, be only acceptance and welcome and delight on God's part. I want you just to try to grasp how fundamental and significant this truth is for your life. The quote in your bulletin this morning is from the 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He put it like this, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of Romans 8 verse 1. He's absolutely right. Because you see, without a verdict over you of no condemnation, there's really no release for you from guilt and unworthiness and pain. And the lack of that release is only going to manifest itself in your life in other troubles, whether that's an ongoing drivenness out of a need to prove yourself or a pronounced defensiveness and, and sensitivity to criticism or a lack of confidence in relationships with other people or even with God or even perhaps some addictive behavior in your life as a reaction to that sense of, of, of guilt and unworthiness. But with the verdict of no condemnation, there's freedom. You've been set free. Through Christ, we have freedom from condemnation. But this freedom is even richer than that, because Paul wants us then to see that this freedom is not just a freedom from something, it's a freedom for something. Look at verses 3 into 4. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul says, God sent Jesus into this world in human form to make the sacrifice for our sin. That brought the verdict of no condemnation. It purchased our forgiveness. But his death, Paul says, was for an even greater purpose than that, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. If you've ever taken the time to read through the entirety of Romans chapter 8, you'll have noticed how over and over again Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. He actually mentions the word, the Greek word for the Spirit occurs 21 times in this chapter, 19 of which are, are reference to the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 4, Paul wants us to understand that while the death of Jesus defeated sin legally by paying our debt, God intended to also begin to wipe out the reality of sin in our lives so that we would be empowered to obey God's law by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So we might put it like this. Salvation comes in the first part 
by the work of Jesus for us, but then secondly, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The gospel gives us freedom from condemnation, but it also gives us freedom for holy living. Paul essentially says in verse 4 that everything Jesus has done for us, his incarnation, that is him taking on human flesh as we celebrate at Christmas, his death, his resurrection, everything he has done was all for the purpose of us living holy, beautiful, obedient, flourishing lives. The God's goal through our salvation is actually not just to rescue us from, from hell, from sin, it's to make us look and, and look like Jesus. And that's surely one of the greatest possible motives for you and me to seek to live holy lives. Every time you and I intentionally sin, we're endeavoring to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Every time we intentionally sin, we're endeavoring to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire life and death and ministry of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't work as an incentive for godly living, then there's nothing that's going to make you want to live that way. God has given us a new freedom from something for something. But in order for to equip us for this new freedom for holy living, God has given us a second new thing, Paul tells us, a new mindset. Look at verses 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh uh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, it's easy to read these verses and ask, why all this emphasis from Paul on the flesh and its consequences? And the reason for that emphasis is because Paul wants to demonstrate as clearly as possible the difference the Holy Spirit makes when he comes into the life of a Christian. It's really important for us to understand here what Paul is not saying and what he is saying. Here's what Paul is not saying. He isn't saying here, here are two types of Christians. There are those... Christians who live according to the flesh and there are, or the sinful nature, some other translations put it, and there are those Christians who live by the Spirit. Paul uses this language of flesh differently in other places. Yesterday, my friend Ben John, who I'm delighted is here today, who I met through the Andres, which is why Ben's here today. Uh, ben and I were reading 1 Corinthians 3 yesterday, and, and if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, he uses the language of flesh differently to how he uses it here. He's accusing the Corinthian Christians of behaving like those who live according to the flesh. But here in Romans 8, Paul has a different goal. He wants to encourage every Christian believer by describing not two kinds of Christians, but two types of people. These verses are describing the unbeliever on the one hand and the believer on the other. The one person who's not a Christian and the other person who is a Christian. Because he says the unbeliever is a person who lives according to the flesh. You say, well, what's the flesh? Well, one way to understand what Paul means by the flesh is to drop the H and spell the word backwards, self. A person may be a lovely person, maybe the most delightful neighbor or relative you have, but at their core, they are curved in on themselves, as St. Augustine put it back in the fourth century. They have no real interest in Jesus and the Holy Spirit does not dwell within them. They think naturally, not supernaturally. 
And all of that has devastating consequences, according to Paul. Here in verse 6, he says we read that they are without hope, moving towards what the Bible calls death with a capital D. Even though they can be nice, they have a hostility towards God. So that when you might start to speak to them about the gospel, they either change the subject or they get defensive or even feisty. They refuse to submit to God. In fact, Paul says that they're driven by their flesh such that they can't submit and they are unable to please God. That's a bad place to be in. It's a sobering, devastating analysis of what life according to the flesh, life according to the self looks like. But the whole reason Paul brings this up here is in order to show the stunning contrast then between such a life and the glorious life on offer to every person of being a Christian. Because the Christian is the one who, having put their trust in Jesus, such that there is now no condemnation, lives according to the Spirit and sets his or her mind on the things of the Spirit. That is, God gives us a new mindset. Now, the word Paul uses here, translated mindset, isn't referring just to our intellectual activity, our thinking. It's talking about our very core. It's referencing our will, our fundamental orientation, the convictions and the hard attitude that steer the very course of our life, our, our hard drive, if you will. Everything, he says, has now become geared towards what Paul calls the things of the Spirit. We've set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So what are those things? Well, they're not, it's not, he's not just saying, you know, they think about religion or they think about theology. It makes more sense to understand the things of the Spirit as those things to which the Spirit wants to draw our attention. As you go through the rest of Romans 8, you discover, well, there are certain things the Spirit really wants us to think about a lot. We'll see next week. The Spirit really wants to show us how we're adopted into God's family as sons and daughters of God. The Spirit really wants to show us that he's, that he's removed a, a sense of fear of rejection and assures us that we are God's beloved children. So last week, the Spirit comes alongside us to give us confidence to approach God in prayer. So that all through this chapter, Paul tells us what the Spirit is preoccupied with, how in Christ we're adopted, we're loved, we're welcomed. And so those who live according to the Spirit are going to be preoccupied with the same things. And whatever preoccupies your mind, your, your control center controls your life. And so Paul says, when you're preoccupied with the things of the Spirit, guess where that leads? Paul says, we begin to taste life and peace. Don't you want life and peace? I want life and peace. Paul says, here's how, how you get it. So these verses are here to reassure you that if you're a Christian, here's what God has already done for you through his spirit. And in a sense, they're also a warning for any of us who are not yet Christians of our predicament, but also an invitation to what might be true in your own life. It's nothing short of a seismic shift that takes place when someone moves from being an unbeliever to a believer in Christ. It's a shift from death to life. And Paul's making the point, it's miraculous. It's miraculous because when a person isn't a Christian, they in and of themselves can't respond to God. They don't want to respond to God. But God does a supernatural work through the Spirit to bring that person to life. They begin to think God's way and they begin to taste life and peace. God gives us a new mindset. 
So in order to equip us for this new freedom for holy living, God has given us a new mindset, but a mindset that, as we've already started to see, is only possible because of a new indwelling presence. And that brings us to our third and final point, a new indwelling presence, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I just notice for a moment this beautiful testimony to the ministry of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This ministry to every Christian. Some of us think, you know, the Trinity, that's, that's for super Christians. I, I just want to keep things simple. Paul says, you miss out on what the Trinity is doing. You're missing out on, on everything. Just, just look at what he does. If you were to ask Paul here, well, who dwells in us, Paul? Paul says, well, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. His Spirit, God's Spirit dwells in you. And Paul's not trying to say, you know, the Spirit and Christ are two names for the same person or that they're interchangeable. His point is that both are so intimately involved in the work of God in your life that, God, that Paul can shift virtually unconsciously from one to the other. They're working all together to, to achieve the purposes of God in your life. And this is not just the preserve of the few. This is not the experience of the super saint. Paul's point here is that this is the birthright of every person who is a believer in Christ, the authentic seal of our new identity in Christ. What Paul is getting at in this last section is how God changes people, how he equips us to live out this new freedom we have in Christ, how he changes our mindset from an old one to a new one. Years ago, I heard Tim Keller put it like this. I've, I've always found this helpful, even though it's a bit of a mouthful, that God affects organic change through a new internal dynamic as opposed to mechanical compliance through external force. Let me read that again. God affects organic change through a new internal dynamic as opposed to a mechanical compliance through external force. What's he talking about there? For the person who's not a follower of Jesus, who doesn't have the spirit of Christ within him or her, who lives according to the flesh, when they want to bring change to their lives, their only option is to try to force that change externally. It means sort of jury-rigging your heart through something like fear or guilt or duty or pride to act differently. But nothing actually gets changed on the inside. Mechanical compliance through external force can, can bring some modifications in behavior for the short term, a few days, maybe a bit longer, but because the changes aren't rooted internally, they're always going to be temporary. But you see, what the Spirit brings, however, is organic change through a new internal presence, a new internal dynamic. The Spirit takes up residency within us, and He changes us from the inside which results in a transformation that's real and that's lasting. Think about it this way. If the Spirit of Christ doesn't dwell within us, we end up 
looking, living a kind of Christmas tree existence. I'm, I'm guessing that many of you have your Christmas tree up already. Uh, we hope to get ours this week. Tara and I will, as tradition goes, go to a local tree farm. And while I lie in the muddy ground with a dull saw trying to cut down the tree, she now will live stream the event for the kids as a reminder of the entertainment they enjoyed over the years, watching me struggle every December, the things we do for love. But imagine, imagine we get it cut down, we bring it home, we put it in the stand, we make sure it's straight, get out the decorations, the decorations go on the tree. And like your tree, I'm sure it looks great. It looks fabulous. But let's say we leave that tree up for many months and we're forgetful about watering it. How is that tree going to look? Well, the decorations may still be trying to hang on there, but it would pretty much look terrible. You'd, you'd probably start feeling sorry for this tree. You'd start thinking, you know that Charlie Brown tree? That looks positively splendid compared to your tree right now. And why does it look so bad? Because there's no life in it. You can make it look good for a while, but it's all externals. It's all window dressing. Eventually, you have to come to the realization and admit that it's dead. And the same is true of us when we try to change the dynamics of our lives by external force rather than by organic internal change. But when the spirit of Christ's indwelling presence is yours, the fact is there's no limit to the transformation that can occur in your life. The key is his presence. I've always liked the way Archbishop William Temple, early 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, expressed this truth. Listen to what he said. He said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. God's purpose is to make us like Christ, and God's way is to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Friends, here's the good news. Even if this Christmas feels like a reality Christmas, even if the darkness with which Advent begins feels particularly bleak to you this year, even if the sufferings of this time between are really hard to bear, we, at our core, are people who have a great hope, a hope of all things made new in the future. And that hope of all things new in the future is grounded already in the newness of life through Jesus that we get to experience now in the present. A new freedom, a new mindset, a new indwelling presence. Behold, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter, we thank you for its reminder of the things that you have done for us, for the verdict that is over all who put their trust in Jesus, all who would take the simple path of the ABC to know that there is now no condemnation in Christ for those who love you. 
We thank you that you have given us this freedom, a freedom from condemnation, but also a freedom for something, a freedom to live the way you've called us to live. And you've given us the resources to do that by your indwelling presence, through your spirit, by creating in us a new mindset. Lord, may these things be more than words that I've spoken, words on a page. May these things be the new reality of our lives in this period of Advent and reality Christmas. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.